Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Hear The Voice podcast. When I first started the idea to have a podcast, I wanted to talk to community level coaches who had had success. Heath Jamison and Dan Donati were just a few names that I jotted down in preparation for making the show. I was so lucky this week to have both gentlemen on my podcast to talk about their experiences and journeys in becoming successful local community football coaches. They give great insights and philosophies on how they build their teams and rapport with not just the players, but the communities that the clubs are in. I want to thank them for their time and really, really hope you enjoy the show. I also want to thank Peter Mance from St. Joseph's Football Club, Pete Summers from the Uni Blues Football Club, Quinton Gleeson from the Uni Blues Football Club, and Pete O'Brien, an ex-teammate of Dan Donati's at the Noble Park Football Club, for giving us a great insight into the two guys I had on the show and some relative stories and experiences that they had with these two men. I hope you enjoy it. Here they are, Heath Jamison and Dan Donati. Dan Donati and Heath Jamison, welcome to Hear the Voice, boys. Great to be Thanks, here, Rutz. Thanks for having us. Not a problem. Where are we hiding here? It looks like both of you are in cupboards or closets. I can't really tell. Where are you hiding <laughs> there, Nutsy? Mate, I am in a bedroom um, at a little rental down in uh, Inverloch at the moment, mate. I escaped uh, a couple of weeks ago before all the lock- lockdown actually happened. So um, nice to be down here. Um, where it's a little bit more normal than what it is in Melbourne at the moment. But yeah, I'm in Inverloch, I'm in the bedroom. I've got two, two of my three bullfed kids outside, so you might hear them at some stage. Now, I've bribed my couple in the back. Well, I've got more than a couple, but there's two here. I don't know where the other ones are. And I've said, yeah, go for it. PlayStation, chips, it's not yeah. That's what that's what yeah. I'm yeah. about. So, yeah. I'm, I'm sim- yeah, mate, I've, I've taken up the one of the bedrooms at home. I've told the kids to stay out. I'm, a bit horrified we might have one of those moments where the guy was doing the NBC uh, chat and his kids come running in. So if that happens, I apologise now. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Well, uh, it's great to get you both on. When I started the idea and floated the idea with a few friends about doing a podcast, my initial thought was to, to get guys like yourselves on, people that have done some great things in community sport, mostly footy. Footy's my passion and, and background as well. And and tell your stories. And uh, so I'm really stoked to be able to get both of you on. I think you both know each other through the Vaffa circle. So Nutsy, you're at Xavier as an assistant and Heath, obviously, um, reigning premiership coach at Uni Blues. Uh, but there's been a, a fair bit of success in coaching in the background. So with that general introduction, um, I'll start with you, Heath. Why coaching? How did you start? Yeah, interesting. I... You know, I think as a player, I probably always wanted to coach. I, I was a deep sort of thinker of the game, probably to my detriment sometimes as a player. But um, I always liked, um, you know, I always thought I had a bit of a footy brain, you know, watching the game whilst I played it. Um, I wanted to go into coaching afterwards. And then it probably all happened really quickly. I was, um, 
an assistant at a at a club in Tassie where I grew up, um, and the head coach sort of moved on mid year. Yep. And I was the only assistant standing, so I got thrown into that role. Did it for about six weeks for the back end of the season. Um, then went away, played footy again. And then the same thing happened to me when I came to Queenscliff. Uh, I was an assistant to uh, then Andy Viola at Queenscliff. And at the end of his first year, he didn't want to go on anymore. And I was sort of the only one left standing who wanted the job. So pretty much thrown into it. And then... Um, yeah, from then just really enjoyed it. You know, it's a pretty rewarding job and, and you know, it's grown grown from there. I think it, this year is my first year off in about 12 years. So, yeah, it's been a bit of a slog, but, yeah, something that I've enjoyed. Fantastic. Dan, what about yourself, mate? When did you get going with the coaching? Um, oh, look, probably not too dissimilar to, to Heath in, in ways that, I, I guess, as a, as a player, I, I kind of... Look, I, I was fortunate to play um, at some really, really good football clubs and, and had some success and learned from some amazing mentors along the way. But I was always really interested in the in the mental side of, of football, of footy, in the preparation. And um, I was lucky enough to captain um, Noble Park Footy Club for the last five years of my career there. And that was, whilst it wasn't my best individual football, it was probably my most rewarding um, time. Yep. Um, being able to lead a group of boys and being the person at the front before games talking and, and thinking about ways to motivate the group on a Thursday night. And my mind was always that thinking about how I can get the best out of a group as a player. Um, so I guess I kind of always thought it, when, when this is all over, I'd like to actually coach one day as well. And um, I retired um, probably just body shit itself a little bit earlier than what I would have liked to have at Noble Park. The standard was just too good um, back yeah. then. And um I, uh, I thought I'd go and, and have a kick in the GFL because I thought the standard wasn't as good. And I, I got a rude awakening when I, when I travelled down the highway yeah. to find the Geelong Footy League, um, if not stronger, certainly as strong as the AFL. But I ended up taking an assistant coaching role down there um, under Ben Harris at Lara. Yep. Um, and I ended up spending... I actually snapped my Achilles, actually, the first pre-season. So I missed the whole year. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed on the sidelines, helped me out. And then I played the next year and then helped out my third year. So I ended up spending three years with him okay. um, and just enjoyed it. And to be honest, um, I was then thinking, look, timing for me, I, I was busy. I travel a lot with work, but the timing just opened up. And I got a text message out of nowhere saying that there was a couple of jobs going in the Eastern Footy League. I'd spent eight years playing there. Um, and one of the jobs was the Bourne job. Um, and at the time, I didn't know much about ball. And other than the fact I played against them, the last game I played, I was in the prelim and they pumped us in 2008. They ended up in the grand final that year. Obviously, successful club um, for many years. I knew if, if I was any good, I'd have the resources available to me to be successful in the role. And I went pretty hard at that one role and one role only. Um, and uh, got interviewed for the role. And yeah, the rest, the rest is history. I ended up landing that job. Um, I was a bit of a last-minute entry, but obviously did well enough um, in the interview process, got the gig, and I had a very, very memorable five years um, after that. Um, retired after five years, and I've spent the last three years uh, back at Old Zavs, and I was very myself. That's where I started my footy journey. Yep. Um, and I've really enjoyed going back there, actually, um, helping out um, as an assistant coach to Jimmy McDonald in my first year. He, he took off, and... Um, they tried to coax me into taking over from him, but I just didn't have the time. And I wasn't interested in senior coaching, to be honest, um, three years ago anyway. So I've done that for the last two or three years. Paul Sadley last year and James Byrne, who took over this year. And obviously, um, we were having a great, great time the last three or four months before um, he still took over. So yeah. that's kind of the journey um, from, from my perspective. 
That's great. It's a great insight. I'm sure we'll dig a bit deeper. Uh, Jamal Heath, I'm going to be using nicknames all over the place, but I came across your journey um, at work. I came across the Geelong Addy and uh, it was an article, I think, just after you won the premiership at Queenscliff. And I just want to clear up, and maybe you alluded to it with um, being an assistant and being last man standing, but did you have to be pushed into taking the job? Because the article sort of, I think, from memory, said that you weren't too keen on coaching, which is a bit of a surprise seeing as the success you've had in the last, well, four, five, six years. Um, can you give us a bit of an insight? And I guess going to the interview process, when you, if you have one at all, with your time at Queenslip and potentially Joey's and Uni. Yeah, it was it was a definitely an interesting um, sort of time. The uh, Queenscliff um, job, I, I would say, I'd say the outgoing coach probably thought that there wasn't much hope. I think they won the wooden spoon that year, and um, the job was available to anyone. But I suppose no one come forward to take it. So I would say it was a last man standing sort of job at Queenscliff. But yep. You know, you can look at that two ways. I think everyone who wants to get into... Co- My worry about young coaches these days is they want the best side in the best comp um, and everything given to them. I think back then, I, I was sort of, I've got nothing to lose here, you know. If we turn up next year and win the wooden spoon again, you know, I haven't well, I haven't taken the club backwards. But it, it was actually refreshing to start your coaching career at a, at a side that was on the bottom of the ladder because there was no expectation and you could grow into the role being a young playing coach too at the time. Yep. Um, you know, that was, I think it was a great learning curve, you know, just being thrown into it. You know, what are you going to do? You get there the first night at training and you don't really know what's going on. And, and from there, I think everyone wanted to jump on and help me out as well. And that's where the players at Queenscliff were really good. You know, we, we had a group down there that was always pretty talented but didn't really care too much about their footy. We are probably able to change that throughout the time. So that helped me as a young coach to grow um, grow into the role, I suppose, and improved each year, definitely as a coach. Um, but the club sort of improved there as well. And, um, you know, good things started to be getting talked and it sort of snowballed into, into the success we had. Um, going into St Joseph's, that was a step up for me. So I'd spent a year in the um, TAC at Sandrian Dragons, actually. Um, good mate of mine, Plappy. Justin Plapp had the job there and I was going to have a year off, but he sort of, um, what would you say, twisted my arm to um, go up there and have a crack at that. Um, the TAC system was good. I'd, I'd probably say that I'm... I'm probably not suited to that sort of, I wouldn't say development of players because that's always been important to me, but the the culture of a local footy club probably suited my coaching at that stage. Um, development's obviously always important in coaching, but um, when you've got draftable kids and you have to nurse them through the season and try to get them up after games and that type of stuff, it's probably not something that I was ready for at that stage. So I wanted to get back into local coaching. Um, the job at St. Joseph's opened up and I thought I'd have a crack at it, you know, not knowing where I'd get. St. Joseph's had always been a um, a pretty successful club without getting the ultimate success, I suppose. So when I interviewed with them, it was totally different. So um, I had to go through the... the um, full shebang I suppose I had um, PowerPoint 
presentation. Yeah. I had three or four people in the room looking at me. They got me in two or three times. Each time I had a different person in the room who wasn't there the last time. So they made me work pretty hard for it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And then the the last job with Uni Blues also, you know, was was pretty um, daunting, I'd say. I was running late. I'm still living in Geelong, so commuting up. I was running late to the um, job. I was rattled a little bit when I got in there, but I was able to settle down. And that was similar. I went in with a PowerPoint presentation, probably sold myself a little bit there. and was lucky enough to land that. But that was in front of six people. I think um, Mark Williams, uh, not... There's too many Mark Williams in um, Geelong, but the Uni Blues, Mark Williams, who's now, I think, in charge of the AFL umpires. Um, he was in there. Brian Cordy was in there. So you walked in and you, you saw a few people that you, um, that you knew of. So that was a little bit daunting, that one. But all, all processes have been really good. Um, you know, my, my advice, I suppose, there to any young coaches is um, you can never be over-prepared for, for a job that you want to go for these days, I believe. So go in, sell yourself, you know, let everyone know what you not only can do for the team, but for the club as a whole. That's probably one thing that I've always tried to sell when I go into these interviews is, um, you know, St. Joseph's. St. Joseph's had a really good junior program, but I, I could see that they were struggling to turn their junior players into senior players. So that's the probably angle I took there. Um, and when I went to get the Uni Blues job, it was totally different where I probably saw, um, you know, myself as a bit of a chef, I think, they had all the ingredients, but they just couldn't put the the dish together. So I probably went in there, you know, saying that I'm an experienced coach. Um, it's not my first time at it. You know, I'm, I'm here to put everything together. I can do that. I can bring that. It's worked before. I think it can work for your footy club. So going into an interview process, I think it's important that you've got something to sell, um, you know, and sell yourself. Yeah. yeah. 100%. It's great. I think... Um... Quinton Gleeson might not see you being late for that uh, interview the same as what you did. I think <coughs> with your success at Joey's with the premierships under the belt, there was a head wobble and you just thought you could do whatever you liked. <laughs> and then rocking yeah. you and spill water all over Pete Summers and whatnot. I, I, so. <laughs> I'm actually, you know, I'm not the fittest bloke going around. I'd, I'd probably put on a few since I retired from footy. I had to run up the stairs, I think. So by the time I got to level 35 or wherever it was, um, I was a little bit under the weather, so I was trying to pour a drink and I was shaking like a leaf. So that wasn't that wasn't because I was scared of the interview. That was because of uh, my fatigue from um, getting into the interview. That's <laughs> yeah, good. It's good. I want to come back to um, obviously some Joey success, which we will. Uh, Nazi, a little bit different for you, mate. I know the perception of the ball and footy club um, for those that haven't been involved in it is probably a very unfair one and something that I'll, I'll get you to talk about. But the reality, if you do know the ball and footy club there, you know, as I've come to know, it's not, this is the case, but they got big, big uh, empty pockets. Well, not empty pockets. They've got big pockets, big uh, paychecks to give out and uh, they go get the best talent and that's it. But your experience is vastly different, isn't it? When you took that job. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it is. It's, um, and obviously having spent five years there now, it's one of the misconceptions in local footy. Yep. Um, sometimes you, you get knocked down a little bit if you have sustained success. I mean, you look at Deer Park, people are saying, oh, they, they buy their flags or 
you look at Olzevarians or, you know, you look at Uni Blues and, you know, it's not fair they can do this. What I think what so many people out there miss is, is you know, you, you can't, you just can't buy a premiership. It doesn't matter who you are. You can't. It's bloody hard work. You, you're competing against a lot of other very strong footy clubs in the same footy league doing the same things. Yeah. Um, but no, the, the, the ball, I must admit, when I first, when I interviewed the job, speaking of interviews, uh, the process, um, very similar sort of experience to your Joey's one, Jamo. Um, I, I walked in, there would have been four. I think Joel Smith, ex-Hawthorne, uh, Brad Smith, who Richmond and, and, and Collingwood, um, Mike Smith. There were three Smiths. I walked in, there was three Smiths. Um, uh, Mick, Mick Smith, um, that was three initial, and, and Ben Cranage, um, of course, as well as so a Creno. Um, and I did the PowerPoint thing, did all that stuff. And, and one of the things that I did on that, because I'd played against Bourne, I've heard a lot about Bourne, and um, one of my things I actually did on that presentation was that I kind of told them how I felt that they were perceived as a football club, um, which was a bit of a risk. Um, What'd you say? And one of, oh, well, I basically said that, you know, I think the club's perceived as as a club that goes out and buys AFL players. And okay. you, you've, you've built some success off the fact that, you know, you, you've got money and you, you've got these AFL players in and you've, had, you've won a premiership. But then four or five years later, you haven't heard from me, then you'll do it again. And part of my pitch was that I wanted to bring sustained success for the football club and have a bit of a different model and look for potentially some different recruits. This was before I knew much about the club. So, you know, sitting there telling that to the president, Richard Wilson, um, <laughs> who I know very, very well now, um, the great man, Prez, but, he would have been sitting there at the time thinking, okay, well, I'm going to teach you a few things, young man. But he, 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 took, it on, he took it on board and obviously it didn't turn him off enough to, to not give me the job. I think, if anything, it was like, okay, well, he's coming from a different angle here. Um, and uh, they didn't mind it. But when I got to the footy club, um, look, it wasn't a rude awakening for me. It was my first senior coaching role. Yeah, you go into it not kind of knowing what you're doing. You know, you think you know what you want to say in, in philosophies and how you want to play. But um, I distinctly remember... I didn't have a physio. A physio. There was no physio all preseason. So we trained three nights a week without a physio. There was no trainer. No trainers to take ankles. Yeah. I'm like, what? what where am I? Like, I'd, I'd never experienced this before ever. Yeah. So that's no word of a lie. Um, we did a whole preseason. We had a, a young girl who did some fitness stuff for us, but there was not a trainer and there was not a physio for any session through the whole preseason. Um, and for the first three years, I think we had a physio once a week on a Thursday night and I had to push really hard to get that by the end. But I, I guess what that probably shows, I was filling water bottles up and, and footies up for the first two or three years until volunteers started, started helping. The, the club wasn't set up as, as some of the big local footy clubs are. And I, I was at Noble Park for years. Um, that's a local footy club that was set up to, to be run um, by amazing heap of volunteers. They just never volunteers in, in, the, in the area. Bourne's a, a different area. Um, obviously a very um, wealthy, wealthy area, but that area, it, a lot of the young kids, they're all sucked out of the system by the, um, by the private schools. Yeah. So a lot of, the, a lot of the, the fathers and a lot of the kids are all, you know, they're all volunteers at all these other amateur clubs, basically. So Bourne used to run off the, off the sweat of an, of an oil in the rag, but the prayers and the, the guys that ran it were extraordinary. Yeah. Um, Richard Wilson, Paul Johnson and, and the likes, they, they were amazing men who dipped in their own pocket too many times to keep the place going. Um, did they pay big money uh, in my time? The maximum we ever paid a player, I don't mind saying that, was $1,000 a game. Yeah. The club didn't do sign-on fees the whole time. The amount of players we lost to other clubs that had come and sit down and said, oh, this club's offering me five grand, like, mate, we don't do that. We don't do it. Um, mostly sort of five, six, seven, eight hundred bucks a game, which is good money for local footy. They got their money. They have to worry about that. That was that was a plus because some clubs would uh, promise and don't pay it. 
But the club certainly wasn't built off um, paying 30, 40, 50 grand to play. Just never did it. Not in my time, not once. Um, we had some really, really great boys there that, that bonded together and certainly had to work bloody hard. Everyone did. Everyone had to pull their weight at that club, um, for sure, to get the success that we had. I think uh, you both are very similar in the sense that you went to footy clubs that didn't necessarily have a lot of success but had the potential to be very successful for a long period of time. Now, for one reason or another, they hadn't before you'd both got there. So, And you're both probably too humble in your own right, but the reality is from an outsider's perspective like myself, there's been a shift and a change that you've brought to your football clubs that has allowed success to happen. So, Jammer, what was it? What was it at Joey's? And I spoke to the now footy manager, I think it's Peter Mance, who said that um, your ability to keep the kids or get the kids back original Joey kids and, um, and blood them and keep them at the club and play them and even hemorrhage a little bit in the early um, years of your time at Joey's, maybe, I think it was four or five games you won in your first year, but you played yeah. and blooded a lot of kids. Um, was that your approach, mate, going in? Yeah, it was. Um, look, I think I spoke to a lot of sort of people around St. Joseph's and asked what the problem was and you know, St. Joseph's had an affinity with getting um, ex-AFL players in that um, probably hadn't deli- well, had got them to a certain point, but hadn't got them over the line. So yeah. um, the good thing, the best thing about St. Joseph's Football Club, although it's got no links to um, to the school, it's got the name. So the kids from the school used to either play at St. Joseph's, Newtown or St. Mary's. So the three clubs there used to share the kids, still happens now. Okay. So we used to get the pick of the great kids, but the problem was no one wanted to... Uh, because St. Joseph's are always striving to win, 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 no one wanted to take a step backwards to take three steps forwards, I suppose. And um, that, that was my pitch. That's what I was always going to do. So we had a group of kids there that were highly talented. Um, you know, Tommy Atkins, who's playing for Geelong now, there was, there was his age group that had come through together. They just needed to play senior footy together straight away. Yeah. Um, look, we knew origin- we knew that we were probably going to take a step backwards, but I think if you get those kids that have grown up through the club to come through the club, their parents are uh, um, some of their parents were St Joseph's <coughs> people as well. I just think the vibe of the club changed a little bit. Um, it also gave that pathway from under eights football all the way through to senior football, which I reckon St Joseph's struggled with. Um, so I, I guess. Yeah, it's all about building that foundation. You know, what do you want to do? Do you want to build that pathway through? Um, the place become a better environment. All the kids, I suppose, could... Um, could what would, what would you say? All the kids... Uh, all the kids could learn how to play senior footy at their own time. I, I, I wasn't in a rush, okay? But I knew that they were talented, a lot more talented than some of the other kids in the... Um, competition that it wouldn't take too long and um, once I think people saw that they wanted to jump on so the second year um, I think we made the prelim in the second year um, after finishing third last in the first year but that was because players come back to the club Um, players saw that who had left that wasn't happy with the way things were getting run they come back Daniel Lovett come back who was an important part in our premiership years um, he'd been a great um, player who'd gone because he was just sick and tired of the way the football club was sort of going. So, um, yeah, and then and then from then, 
I, I guess the success come from those players that I played in that first year, getting to their 20 games, you know, they become better. By the time they got to 40 games, they were all really good players in the competition. By the time they got to 60 games, you know, 10 of those 30 players, 10 of those would have been in the top 30 to 50 players in the competition. And they'd all play together. So that's why we'd be able to have that same success. But you needed to go backwards before you wanted to go forwards. Not many people wanted to do it, but I suppose that's... Um, I, was ha- I was fortunate that the president at the time, Vince Latore, um, believed in what I wanted to do. Um, he thought that's what they needed to do as well. So he backed me in. And I think that's a, a key for any coaches. You know, I think um, Daniel was just speaking there about his president at... Um, at uh, Baldwin, you know, if you if you build a relationship with your president, if you're always letting them know what you want to do and, and you know, how you're trying to move the football club forward, you know, they have patience and they'll work with you. You know, they'll ride the ups and downs with you. But um, so it's it's good to communicate that with your, with your president, I suppose, and get, get everyone on board so you're all moving in the same direction. Yeah. Really yeah. good insights, mate. Really good. I'll... We'll come back to the challenges that were in front of you as well, because it wouldn't have been all smooth sailing, I can imagine. And um, I think, Nutsy, if we segue into that for you, you actually took the football club over at a really, really tragic period, if you um, wouldn't mind touching on that. Yeah, um, look, I did. Um, at the end of 2011, um, in, in the last game of the year, actually, I played in an elimination final ball and played Blackburn at, at Ringwood um, Oval. Yeah. Um, one of the players, Sean Bergen, playing for Bourne, um, went up for a mark um, halfway through the last quarter, I think, um, just in a normal contest and play from behind. Um, went to spoil the ball. Sean landed on the ground uh, heavily and he never woke up. Um, he passed away. He was in a coma for two weeks. Um, and obviously uh, the boys had seen that happen. The game stopped for about 15 minutes, I believe, it was a final. Um, I think Bourne might have been up by three points at the time, then up losing the game. Um, he was stretched off. He was in a coma for two weeks and he passed away. And when the job um, came up was probably about a month after that happened. Yep. So I, I was aware that that had happened, obviously. So, um, yeah, coming into the football club, um, I remember during the interview process asking um, Paul Johnson, How, how's the list? You know, How's it looking after what had just happened? And they, they were like, oh, no, look, mate, everyone's staying. It's all good. You know, no one's going to leave. Um, the first thing you do when you when you get a coaching job um, was is you jump on the phone and one of the first in fact I think the first guy I called might have been Pete Summers actually yep. he was the, the, the reigning back to back best and fairest yep. at Bourne the best player in the competition at the time um, and he looked he he just couldn't commit to anything he was really really um, shell shocked after what had happened I think he was going to Nepal to kind to, to base camp and. Um, a wonderful guy. I got on really, really well with him. I spent a lot of time trying to, to, to basically beg him to give me a go. In the end, he left and uh, he wasn't the only one. Um, it turned out after all the phone calls and, and all the chasing around, we lost 23 players that played senior footy the year before. Wow. They left. So I think 37 players played senior footy, 23 left the footy club. Wow. So I was left with 14 and, and not the 14 best, the best and fairest. Pete left, um, a couple of ex-AFL players left, Callum Urch and a couple of others. Yep, yep. So what I was left with was um, after everything and what had just happened, obviously, so many conversations with these guys and some wonderful young young kids that, that really wanted to stay and, and honour Sean's legacy and all that stuff. And I really wanted to 
to kind of build something. You know, those that didn't want to stay, I understood that. Um, you know, it was traumatic and some just didn't want to be at the club anymore for different reasons or whatever. But we had to work pretty, pretty bloody hard um, to recruit a side just to scrounge the numbers together in that first year. And it certainly wasn't what I expected you know, coming in the rooms. I'll be honest, I, I didn't expect that at all. And it was a really challenging pre-season off the back of that. But Jimmy worked hard, um, recruited players like Ryan McMahon, who played 200 games for Port Melbourne, Shooter, who was just an absolute beauty. Um, I was so wrapped to get him because he was just such a good bloke and he was hard and he was humble. Um, so he was huge, huge for us that year. Um, I picked up Shane Tregear out of the out of the waffle VFL. Played a couple with Sandra Ham, who is an absolute superstar, um, who came across. Johnny Milhoisen came from Port Melbourne. Um, a couple of young kids off VFL list. We managed to to nab them um, as well. Um, but it was the guys that stayed um, really really created a bond that was was pretty much unbreakable by the end of the journey um, because they they stuck around through some really really difficult times. But it was it wasn't plain sailing um, that year. It was it was hard, and I'm missing a lot of guys that we picked up at the start of the year. And they'll probably come to me soon. But guys like Rennie Gilchrist, um, I ended up making him captain his first year. He was only 23. Um, I was just so impressed with him in the first couple of months. Um, I chose a young captain who had just gone through trauma, um, was just so passionate about the footy club and wanting to be there. And I just thought he's the right guy to lead the club. Um, you know, six years later, he was named the, the captain of the century at that footy club. So I was really really proud proud of him. Um, but that first year in 2012, um, that was that was a, an extremely challenging year for the whole football club for a million reasons, not just the fact we lost so many players, but the fact that um, um, the club had just gone through something extremely traumatic that you don't expect to go through. Um, those boys that, that watched um, Sean get hit and get carried off and went and saw him in hospital and you know, Sean was from a wonderful family, three brothers, very Christian family. Um, I organised uh, with the South Benio Footy Club in the pre-season, his old footy club as well, to do a practice match mm-hmm. and, and, and name a medal after his honour and a trophy after after Sean. We did that in the pre-season. The real bonding experience went down to Bendigo, which was awesome. The guys that still talk about that trip um, as, a, as a real turning point and a real bonding experience for us. And um, Sean wore number 68, which was a strange number to wear, but mm-hmm. number 68 went, went everywhere with us. Um, we got a picture frame with his jumper up and, and a photo. We had a hashtag 68, which, which we carried around with us forever. The boys used to term Sean as our 23rd man and they'd refer to him every game, before every game in huddle. I wasn't there, but they did that every week. And the journey sort of begun with, with, with a, an absolute tragic event, but Sean's legacy stayed with us all year that year in 2012 and all year or every year that I coached that footy club. I know they still talk, talk about talk about Sean. Yeah. Um, we invited his parents and his, his young widow, he's married, 23 is married. Um, to games throughout the year. Um, and that, that first year, we stumbled into the finals. We, we just made it, which was amazing. We were stoked to finish fourth, to win a grand final from fourth. No one had done it in the Eastern Free League because you've got to win um, four finals in a row because it's final yeah. five. Yeah. Um, and we, yeah, we got in the final series. There's obviously massive underdogs. Um, and what well, history says, we, we, we did it. We went up winning four finals in a row. Um, off the back of pure emotion, the prelim, I think the second semi was the anniversary of Sean's accident. So again, we brought that to the fore. We I invited his dad to come to come in the rooms for the game, and just to really harness the the emotion of what it was for everyone, just to be part of it. Didn't matter if you were there or not. I wasn't there, but I felt like I was. Yeah. Um, and, and we really just wanted to honour what, what had happened, rather than brush it aside and just pretend it didn't happen. It did. Um, but some amazing things can happen off the back of um, some some tragic events. So we really did harness that, and it became part of our journey. And we went on the prelim the week after in the grand final. We 
we got away to a flyer and jumped jumped them on who were hot favourites. I think it was six goals to one up at half time and we'd done the work and, and we got the got the chocolates. But one of the most extraordinary years of my life and everyone at that footy club from a shocking start and a really difficult difficult period, we managed to sort of bond that together and, and win that twenty twenty flag. Uh, twenty twelve flag. <clears throat> That's an amazing story, mate. I want to um I don't want to dismiss it either. I want to come back to it. Um listening and, and talking to people that um know you well uh especially you mentioned pete summer's name and i had a great chat with him i played with pete back in the day um i wasn't worthy enough of tying up his shoelaces as you tapped on that's a bloody good player um and we had a really good chat and i think both of you may fall into this bracket of and it's pretty interesting actually the podcast that i've done and the people i've spoken to especially coaches there's not a lot of x's and o's for this stuff in fact very rarely do we talk tactics at all um you just touched on that relationship and emotional piece, Nutsy, and I was with you every, word, every way then, every word I was hooked on because it was a, a relative story. Um, Jammer, I'm wondering in your case, mate, and in your experience in success, probably not as in tragic circumstances of Nutsy's experience, but what have you experienced, mate, in terms of the emotional piece? I know Pete touched on today when I spoke to him that you're not massive on the, the numbers and you prefer to look at trends of games and and just let things unfold and make an assessment before, you know, getting carried away with stats and what have you. Maybe give us an insight onto some of your learnings throughout the journey, mate. Yeah, no, and Pete's right there. I've, I've never been a coach that, that looks too much into live stats. I think, you know, they can they can cloud what you want to do. I, I, I like to be a pretty clear thinker. Um, when I went to Uni Blues this year, it was actually interesting because people were looking at me to build a... Um, a coaching group with me, but um, I sort of rang Pete Summers and said, Pete, would you be keen? And he said, yes. And I said, well, that'll do me. I'll just, <laughs> you know, I'll just be me and Pete. I think. Why, um, why, why do you feel like that? Why is that? Uh, look, I, I think, look, I, I would have had more people, but I, I didn't want too many people around the Uni Blues guys this year because I thought they were a really experienced group. And if anything, um, too many people trying to coach them. I reckon um, players of, of their ilk at that level may um, may push back on that. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think when I was at St. Joseph's, I obviously had line coaches. I thought the playing group needed that. Young groups. Yeah. Um, feed them information at each break. I thought when I went to Uni Blues that um, from what I'd heard uh, in previous years that, you know, Johnny... Johnny from up the road wanted to do some coaching, bring him down. We'll put him in charge of the forwards. Um, You've got to be careful when you're bringing people in that when they are talking on your behalf at breaks and that type of stuff, you want the message to get across and you want the players to be listening to that and (coughs) taking that on board. Um, I I thought the Uni Blues playing group probably didn't need too many coaches around them, just probably needed a real basic sort of sort of game plan and let them sort of do their work. Um, that's why it probably didn't go down. But, um, you know, I'm probably digressing a bit there from your question. But, I, um, yeah, it's, as far as um, latching onto something, like Daniel's stories there is fantastic. But I've always tried to be a theme coach and a bit of a man motivator. Um, that's been important for me in my um, coaching as well. Um, I think a couple of the St. Joseph's flags towards the end, we were probably written off a little bit. Um, St Mary's were the side that were um, 
were gave us a touch-up, I suppose, in both second semi-finals. I think St Mary's in the two premierships that we've beaten and they beat us by 10 goals in the actual final series. So as a coach, um, to play on that and to motivate the team to come back to win, I, I'd rather be in that underdog um, position. Um, yeah. And then I, I think with Uni Blues this year, I suppose, to... We had a theme sort of going into the final series, which which I really enjoyed because, um, you know, a lot of people talk about the good players that you get to the football club in the VAFA and everyone says that they're paid and you hear all those stories about those players. But what actually the VAFA clubs provide, which was great for me to see this year, is actually um, lifetime opportunities for our players. You know, um, Cam O'Shea walks out of the AFL with... Um, no job skills whatsoever. And we're able to put him in a really good job where he can learn a role. And, you know, that's going to pay his mortgage. That's going to mm. support his family to go to school long-term. Yep. Um, you know, and all our players at Uni Blues that we've been able to get in, we've get, that's through job opportunity. And I know that's what the, makes the VAFA, I believe, um, a great competition is you, you're not... Um, Players aren't using you, you know, to top up their bank account for a short period. They're actually coming to the VAFA. Um, they're actually coming to the VAFA so they can set themselves up for life after football. So I think the VAFA clubs do a great um, do a great role in uh, setting people up. So we use that. Well, I use that as a coach this year. That you know, you're indebted to the Uni Blues Footy Club. You know, you're going to pay off your house mortgage. You're going to pay your kids' school fees. Um, you know, you're going to set yourself up in your life from what the Uni Blues have given you. And all they want in return is success. And that's all That's all the people around um, the Uni Blues did it for. You know, Tim Rock is running Power Corps in his spare time. He's a full-time football president. It's a tough gig, yeah. you know, but he does it for one reason because he... he He's been successful in his working life, but he wants success at the football club that he looks after as well. And, you know, and that's why these people push hard to get our players' jobs to bring them in. Um, what they want at the other end is some success. And, and that's one theme I suppose we used this year was the debt that they had to repay to Uni Blues because um, you're getting pretty well looked after here long term, you know. So um, we try to push that a little bit. Um, Queenscliff was different. So Queenscliff were um, really enjoyed off-field. Um, and I'd always um, thought that my theme with Queenscliff would be about um, the party. So you guys think you're having fun when you're beating Torquay at Torquay, come back to the club rooms and getting on the juice. Um, my thought was there, imagine if you actually win something, you know, and the whole town gets behind you. <laughs> the party that you have is going to run for three or four weeks. So that was a theme that we had down there that, you know, when this actually happens, um, you know, you're going to have the biggest party of your life. So I was just trying to change um, their tact, trying to latch on, I suppose, to something that they had in common, yeah. a good time on a Saturday night, which we all did, and trying to relay that to their football to try to just get them focused on coming together for, <coughs> for the greater good, I suppose. So. Mate, themes, themes in your coaching to motivate playing groups any which way, I think it's really important at local level. You know, you get you get players that work their ass off all week in their job. The last thing they want to do some nights is get the training on a Tuesday night. So you've got to motivate, you know, you've got to motivate Tuesday, Thursday. You've got to motivate on the weekend um, to get them up. I, I think um, 
you know, the AFL is a different beast. You hear some coaches say it shouldn't be motivating. It's their job, that type of thing. But I think at local level, the guys that can motivate their group to, to push them forward generally get better results than the guys that can't. 100%. 100%. It's a really good insight. Of the biggest take, one of the biggest takeaways is that, um, I guess, environment piece where you're not trying to change a Queen's Cliff. You're actually embracing their culture but then giving them a little bit of a, a push in the right direction. Um, Nazi, have you experienced that too, mate? I was, um, I was lucky enough to have a chat with Pete O'Brien about your good self and um, he mentioned a few things that I probably can't mention on the podcast about you, but... <laughs> Oh, here we go. <laughs> but he was—he was one of the better players. One of the better players that I saw play local footy. Um, but how he spoke about you was quite remarkable. Um, did you have to change uh, your way as you were as a player as you became a coach? Um, he uses the words intensive, motivator, always busy. You even <coughs> breakfast busy apparently up in Byron Bay. Everything's on the move. Everything's on the go. Can't sit still. Even now, I'm watching you. You're like, got ADD, mate. Surely I've got ADD. I think there's a bit of that. <laughs> you're sniffing, you're grabbing your beanie, you're all over the shop. But um, I am, I am. With uh, with Jammer's comments around the Queenscliff, it's really interesting about the environment with the ball environment and coming from the the Noble Park and even playing at Springy and you're on an AFL list at Richmond as well. Did you have to change much in regards to becoming a coach with your philosophies? I want to touch on philosophies with both of you, and I guess it's a good time to segue into that now. How did you go with it, mate, with all the stuff that Obi said about you? Did you take that into your coaching or did you have to take a step back with your personality and sort of change? Oh, it's a really good good, good question. And I think Jamo summed up really, really well, I think, before. And it comes back with the experience you've had too. And I think, you know, I went to Xavier College. Uh, yep. It's an amazing school. Um, parents live out in Lower Plenty. Um, I sort of, I guess you can say, look, dad, dad's a really, really bloody hard worker on a picture frame gallery. So we certainly weren't loaded or, or, or well off, but we, I had a, I had a wonderful upbringing. Um, I went to an amazing school um, and had a, a wonderful young journey, I guess. And then I ended up out of Springvale, yeah. um, which is, which is a suburb I don't think I'd, I'd travelled to many times um, in my upbringing. And I, uh, I had a couple of years at Richmond. I got, I got uh, the arse after two years and I had to choose a club. Um, what, what was I going to do? It's only 20. I still thought I had some really good footy left in me and I got delisted young. And I ended up going to Springvale because they won the premiership in 1998. Yeah. Um, and I had offers to go everywhere, left, right and centre, as you do as a kid out of the AFL system. And I went down to Springy. Um, man, facilities weren't great. They didn't have much there. They offered me 350 bucks a game or 300 a game, I think. Um, <laughs> um, but the fact that they, when I walked in that footy club room and... I saw all the trophies lined up. Um, I met the president. I met Dennis Knight. I met a couple of these old famous people, the stunk of success. And I thought, if I'm any chance of getting back in here, I want to play, I want to play at the best club. I don't care where it is. I don't care how far I'm going to drive. So I'm going to go to Springvale. So I did. Uh, I had one of the great years of my whole life in 1999 out there. And I learned, I learned different, um, I learned about different walks of life, I guess is probably the easiest way to say it. I went to Xavier and now I'm out at Springvale with people who have had, in Dandenong and, and out in Keysborough and wonderful, wonderful human beings and just had such an extraordinary uh, year. Yeah. Um, fast forwarding a few years, I ended up at Noble Park because of that experience in Springvale. Um, and I guess I've learnt from just different people along my journey, um, which enabled me to be, I guess, what I need to be for the particular environment, but you absolutely need to change depending on the environment. You can't just come in with your rules and your regulations and think it's going to work. 
um, at Baldwin or it's going to work at St. Joey's. You've got to learn a little bit about the, the club. Um, I'm really big on history, really big on history um, at footy clubs and drawing on the history of that football club, bringing back past players from successful eras um, to talk about the footy club and what it meant to them because that straight away shows you um, about a bit about a footy club you didn't actually know beforehand. And I remember my first year at Bourne, I did that. Um, I, I got a couple of old players back that, that were, were legends of the football club that I didn't even know, but I'd heard were. So I just want to get them back and hear them talk. Yeah. And it gave me an insight into Bourne that I didn't know um, because, you know, whilst I had perceptions of Bourne, I didn't know Bourne. I wasn't there. It's an extraordinary football club. And, and I wasn't giving it the credit it deserved beforehand. So, um, yeah, you definitely need to change um, your tact. And look, Obi, Obi and I have been mates for years. We met at Springvale. He's godfather to my um, oldest boy, um, Jack. He is the best local footballer I, I saw play, play the game. Um, he, he was an absolute freak. How he didn't play um, at the highest level, I, I don't think anyone knows. Um, but yeah, I, as I said, he, he, him and I would have played a lot of on-ball football together. And he was, um, he was an absolute superstar. And then when I was captain of the football club, I spent a lot of my time thinking about how to motivate everyone else. And I used to use him as an example so many times. Um, but how you talk at Noble Park, it's a footy club. You know, we're all footy clubs. All, the, the messages are all similar, but they do need to be maybe changed off the back of the history. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a really cool insight. Jamo, what about your experience with organisational history, mate? Uh, going from Queenscliff to, to, to Joey's and uni. Um, have you changed your philosophy much? in regards to how you go about it. And what is it that you, you do? I want to dig a bit deeper with you two in, yep. in that secret source, if there is one. I mean, there's probably a dozen premierships between you um, and people, be, people that are listening are probably going, oh, yeah, we've heard it all before. It's just, you know, relationship, et cetera. But I think, the, um, I think the beauty of it is actually hearing the relevant storytelling around the piece and how you actually do it. Yeah, no, look, I... Oh, look, my, my philosophy as a coach has always been a, a whole club approach. Um, you know, building, you've just got to build those relationships and make them meaningful. Um, often at, at St. Joseph's, I'd be the first one there and greet most of the players as they walk through the door. It's something that I um, always wanted to do. Um, I think you'd often find me probably talking to the guy that was... Um, missing out on a game in the reserves or the 12 o'clock team, I used to call it, um, yeah. I should say. So we didn't have that. Um, the way I, I like to coach a team is we're, we're one team. We play at different times. So that yeah. playing group, um, you know, one, one side plays for St. Joseph's at 2 o'clock, one plays at 12 o'clock. So we don't have the seniors' reserves. We train all together, which is exactly what I did. What? what um, did yeah, I, look... I, I don't know where I got that from, but I, I, I've always wanted to make sure that the group was together and every, <clears throat> excuse me, everyone in the team was sort of working towards one thing, whether that'd be, um, and the reason for that, I suppose, is if I want to bring a player up from um, the 12 o'clock side, I want to know that he knows what the language I talk and everything like that. That's going to be important for me um, to fill a gap throughout the year. But, also, to, to stop conversations around the footy club, I think um, what I've probably seen over the years, and everyone would have seen it with football clubs, is um, the best player might be best mates with the guy who's missing out in the reserves. But yes. his conversation that he has with the best player um, can be really detrimental to where you want to go as a footy club. So 
I've always thought if I get along and build good relationships with everyone there, the conversation towards me is going to be healthy. Um, and that, I don't know whether that's um, a perception thing that I wanted to have, you know, for myself. I, I think that that um, makes me relax into the role. But I, I, I've always wanted to build relationships with everyone. So I'd often ask the guy that come into training who was playing in the Magoos, you know, um, Mitch Marino's one at St. Joseph's that still sticks in my head. He used to um, be a bricklayer. He used to come in early to training all the time. I used to, how many bricks you throw up today, you know, where are you working at? And just talk to him. And I used to try to have those conversations with everyone when they come into training. Yeah. Get there early, get it done. Because if you, if you don't, um, if you don't have those conversations early, you just get consumed with training. You don't get to have those conversations. So when yeah. you leave, people don't feel the love. I've always tried to spread that love. Um, Uni Blues was different because I was commuting up. Couldn't get to training too early. But we always had feedback for the players that we used to put up on the wall. So everyone would get their individual feedback, but they'd get it together so everyone could see what um, the, players, the players were doing. But, you know, I think it's boring, but building um, meaningful relationships with your playing group has always been pretty important to me. Um, giving them the feedback that um, they have to hear, not the feedback that they want to hear. Um, that becomes easier too if you have got that relationship with the player. Like I, I often talk to my players now from that I've coached the Queenscliffs and Josephs or Uni Blues that, you know, I've had a fair dink and crack at throughout the year and I'm sure Daniel's the same. Nick, I'm sure you're the same when you've coached. Like I, I lose my marbles pretty regularly throughout a year. <laughs> but um, because I've built that relationship, I think the players realise where I'm coming from. You know, I'm... I'm I'm doing it for the betterment of the team. Um, you know, I'm doing it for their development, you know, and what I'm saying, you know, I'm, I'm not sugarcoating it because it doesn't need to be because, you know, adult conversations are great at football clubs. But um, I think where some coaches may slip up is they haven't built that relationship to have that adult conversation. Mm. And that's where you can really get in trouble as a, as a young coach if you come in blasting but haven't got the respect of your players, um, that's where I reckon some people can slip up. So my philosophy has always been that one club approach, bring the players together. Even at Uni Blues this year, every um, every Tuesday night, we train together seniors, reserves and thirds, you know, which is something that I don't think they've done a lot of in the past. Um, and we'd only break for the last 15 minutes of training on a Thursday night. Um, just because I wanted them to come together, that's what they probably needed. And that's why I was probably a pretty good fit for Uni Blues this year is because they, they, they were a bunch of individuals playing football together, but I was able to, I suppose, bring the whole, whole club together and it sort of worked at, at um, two o'clock, that's for sure. Nutsy, what's week-to-week look like when you're coaching ball and footy club? What's it during the week look like? With the jammers touched on the relationship piece and getting in early, uh, were you similar? Uh, opposition, is vision going around? It's not that long ago, but it's a little bit of time ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's it look like? What's the week-to-week look like for you? Yeah, look, the relationship piece, obviously key, absolute key, time spent. I mean, you just got to spend time. I couldn't tell you how many times. I don't think I could do it now. I think I started coaching porn when I was 32. But, mate, I, was, I, was, I spent time with them. Mate, I went out with them. I, I went over to their house. I invited them to my house. I, I spent genuine time with nearly all the key players, as much as I could, to help build, it, build that, um, 
build those relationships because as Gemma pointed out, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna ask them to do stuff, if you if you're gonna if you're gonna be able to come across and, and you need that you've got to have their respect and you've got to spend time to do that because you just can't come straight in and as Gemma made a really good point come in and, and start blasting away, it's just not going to work. You've got to spend time with people and you've got to get to know them on a different level about their work, about home and ask questions about life, not just about footy. Um, and I was really, really big on that. My week um, typically consisted of a change over the journey, but certainly towards the end I had a pretty, not pretty much a damn pad, but um, I would typically go home and, and watch the replay that night of the game. Yeah. And I'd take their stats. I didn't have a statistician at Bourne, um to do individual statistics. I used to watch the game. I'd take all their stats um, that night, kicks, handballs, and mainly tag focus on tackles, or, or I'd have a focus of the week. And I'd do that that night, and I'd write down some stuff I really liked and I'd use for highlights tapes later on in the year. Um, I didn't show vision every week. I, I found that I did at stages, I found that if you did it too often, this is my perspective, it kind of became, oh, yeah, same stuff, same stuff. I, I typically, I definitely show vision after we'd lost um, on Tuesday night um, without a fail. Um, I never. I used to look at losing. I mean, it's, a, it's such an old saying these days. You know, you're either winning, you learn. But I was using that. I've been using that since I was probably sixteen or seventeen. But um, I just used to learn so much out of out of losing a game. I'd go home that night angry and frustrated, and I'd watch the replay and I'd wake up annoyed. And by Tuesday, you'd see it. You'd go, oh, "Shit, I can see this. I can see exactly what we did wrong. What we need to fix. I'm going to show a bit of vision tonight." I'm not going to single players out. I don't need to, but I can just show bits of footage that I just want to show the boys that um, this is how we play and well, what can you guys tell me that we didn't do here and get them to give the feedback rather than me give it. So I use vision, I reckon, maybe five, four or five times a year when I felt I needed it, when I felt we had a bad game or we might have won ugly or I just need to sharpen up a little bit. I, I, I just didn't want to do it every week. And plus they're local footballers. They've got full-time jobs. Um, we only get them two nights a week. I didn't want to hang around nine, nine thirty, ten o'clock. All that stuff's really important that you keep the balance. Yeah. Um, you know, one of my big philosophies was to keep the place fun, have have fun. I was real big on just having stupid games and mucking around a lot, um, joking with the players pre-season. I used to do four teams every year, split them up into four colours, and they had their own name. And we have a leaderboard, and, and every Wednesday night we play a stupid game for points and all that stuff. I was really big on just engagement because I just wanted them. I mean, what I said before when I first got the club, 23 blokes left. You're not having that if you're enjoying the environment. You're just not. You don't leave a club if you're enjoying it. Um, so I, I really took that on board and wanted to make the place um, more fun. So every week we do something fun um, together on a Thursday night at selection. We'd always have a team meeting um, after selection on Thursday night. And that was a real good sesh. We had a little room, a little den at the bottom of the ball and old social club, yeah. um, which was a yuck little room, but it was our room. Uh, became our little sanctum, our, our tiger sanctum, that room. Yeah. Um, it was just players only in the room um, that were playing that that that, that week and myself. Um, and we'd share with each other. We had a lot of sharing opportunities. We, we spoke really honestly as a group through the journey. I was huge on that as well. Um, but Thursday nights, we'd sit down, we'd go through a bit of opposition stuff, but it would no vision, just, just chatting, just talking. I'd go through every player. Um, anyone want to speak, they could speak on that night and we'd, we'd be out of there. And Saturday, um, over to the players. Oh, I wasn't great game day um, between two and four. Probably my worst two hours of the, of the, of the week. Why? Um, oh, Why say that? Um, I felt like I, so much of my work was in the preparation, just getting the boys ready mentally to, to cross that line and to give their best performance. I get really anxious during the game. Yeah. Um, I write every decision, every bump and... Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 
not the best sideline coach. A hand, hand used to go up. We used to apologise to the boys sometimes because I just couldn't bloody help myself. When the siren would go, quarter time, no probs. Yeah. Settled, clear message, get to the huddle, talk to the boys, siren a go and away I'd be going again. And I, there were game, close games, to be honest. There were games I walked off and I did not enjoy that. I actually <laughs> did not enjoy that. We won by a point. I didn't enjoy that at all. Um, I found that part quite stressful. That's just the way I'm built. I'm just, I write every single thing that's going on and, you know, it, it was great in ways, but certainly during the game, I, uh, I found some, 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 uh, some things difficult. I used to write stuff in my hands just to calm down, um, which over the journey I learned to do. And I'm certainly way better than I was, but um, I found that part um, difficult. I think, my, uh, you know, you see coaches, you see Alistair Clarkson go off his head. I think a lot of AFL coaches do, you just don't hear them. Unfortunately, we're on the sidelines playing a local footy. Everyone hears everything you say and everyone watches everything you do. So um, there were times I certainly battled, yeah. I actually, um, before I go over to Jamo on this piece, it's funny you mentioned that, mate, because I'll share a story. I, we still probably haven't met face to face, but I have, a, I have three brothers and one of them spent a lot of time in Germany and he comes home and we're looking to catch up and have a beer. And I said, I've never been to the Bull Ring. I've never been to Noble Park. And you were coaching Bourne at the time. And so off we went and we caught up and went and had a few beers down there at Noble Park. And at that stage, mate, I think it was your last year of, uh, coaching at Baldwin and there's been a lot of premiership success and a lot of talk and I was really interested to see what was going on. I think I might have been banging away down at the VFL somewhere trying to make my way through coaching. I only really just started. So I was really interested to see what I, what would take place here. What's he like? Well, I got there and if you didn't have a Baldwin polo shirt on, you were getting absolutely abused. <laughs> yep. And then, and then no one was safe. But you, what I will say is... Um, you're right. When I went to the quarter time huddle, very calm, lots of clarity um, and really brief messaging and the playing group was fine. Um, and then, yeah, back to the sideline and off you went again. And maybe there was a little bit more passion in it because it was your old mob as well. Um, yeah, no, no doubt about that. And I was always very careful. I never individualised. I was never for my team or anyone else, but I, I just found myself getting caught up. And there were times where, uh, and that's just the way I coached on edge. I was always on edge. And there were times there's some other grounds I've got coaches boxes where you sit in the coaches box and it's yeah. way back. And yeah. um, one of my assistants at one stage said, mate, you've got to come down to the boundary line because the boys just, they need your energy on the line. So it worked for what I needed to work. But at the same time, you know, there were times where I was like, oh, I actually couldn't handle it myself. But I, did, I didn't enjoy some of it. Um, as I said, I, I did all my work before the game. <laughs> that's awesome. I'll probably put a bit of mayo on that too, mate. But... Um, <laughs> Jamma, do you have? I've been learning a little bit about um, critical friends um, with some people I've been talking to around coaching in all different sports, and I will get back to to Nutsy about maybe he had somebody in the background that was able to tug his shirt or bring him back into line and be that critical friend to get him back on track. In your experience, mate, and let's be honest, we've all coached, we've all rode the bumps and let the emotion take take us into places we probably didn't want to go. Um, and I want to touch on the clarity piece as well for your playing group, because I think as, um, as an industry, some young coaches, well, have a listen to me, like I've been coaching forever, but coaches younger than me can get caught up in the AFL 360, I guess, um, genre of coaching and trying to be too analytical. Um, I know talking to Pete today about yourself that you're not that way. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a strong clarity piece around your game style, but can you give us an insight on both the... 
yeah. the emotions of game day and have you had a critical friend in your corner to bring you back in the line and, and how important the clarity piece is around your playing group? Yeah, look, I, I, you know, and Daniel was just speaking about vision. I think that's probably one thing at local football that um, some coaches do too much of. And, and I, um, I think the quality of vision, I think what we need to remember at local level is the guy that's filming the vision sometimes at ground level on the wing. So yep. the quality of vision to actually share with your playing group when the actual cameraman's following the ball all the time, you, you can't teach too much with it. So to use that, um, keeping people around at the footy club till late, you know, I've always been a, we train from six till 7.30, then you're gone, you're out of there. Yep. You know, on a Thursday night, obviously you hang around, read the teams out and do what you do. But, I think vision at local level, you've got to be really careful what vision you're using and whether there's a benefit to it. Yep. Um, some people think it's the coach's job to chop vision and show players vision. It's not. You know, they do that at AFL level because they've got the behind the goals vision. They've got the six or seven different camera angles. Um, they get it chopped up for them perfectly. You know, the player can go through his individual ed edits and do what he needs to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I... I, I um, I don't overcomplicate things. Um, I'm probably a little bit different to Daniel during the game. I, I need to get nudged. Um, I probably think about the game too much internally and, and show little emotion, I suppose, whilst the game's on. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've always been a note taker, get your notes right. So when you can go out at three quarter time or, or quarter time, the message that you want to get across, you get that across. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with... Um, I see some coaches when I go... You know, watch the local footy on a sad day, just trying to remember everything. Um, don't do it. You know, I, I can't see why people do that. Jot it down, get your notes, go to your board, be nice and calm, like um, Daniel said he was at the break. So I think it's really important to be calm, get your message across, know that it, it sinks in. But, yeah, you know, Pete was right in what he was telling you. I don't like to overcomplicate the game. Um, the, the main reason for that, I think, you get three hours a week with your playing group. You know, it's not long enough, you know, and in that three hours a week that you do get, you've got to get try to get some fitness into them. You know, you, you've got to try to get some ball movement or, or the way you want to play into them. So there's not, a, there's not enough time in a week, I suppose, to come with anything overcomplicated or, or, or um, you know, you've got to know that what you want to teach, you've got time to teach it. And you don't want to teach anything that you haven't got time for because it, it leaves it half done. Is that and night one, Gemma? Is that start? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think, to, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, you know, I've always been a risk taker with our football, the way we want to play. I think um, high scoring sort of attacking sides, you know, get the smallest of the feet, get them up the ground, get them out the back, do whatever you have to do. But I've always tried to teach, you know, our back six, I want them to play dominant position. I want them to win the footy back and then I want them to take a risk when we get the ball. Yeah. You know, and then I move into the midfield. This is what I want you to do. And I have really cl um, clear three key areas for our back six, for our forward six and for our midfield every week. Yeah. And you tick those three areas off, you know, in, in um, from my knowledge, I think that goes towards winning footy games. So, you know, just my, my advice there, I suppose, would be, have have clear instruction to your players. Don't overcomplicate what you want to do because you haven't got time to teach that. 
you haven't got time to tweak it mid-year if it didn't work for the first six rounds or whatever you want to do. So just be clear on what you want to do. Don't listen too much to outside or, um, you know, what's Hawthorne doing? You know, you go to watch Hawthorne on a Sunday and try to do Clarko's cluster, um, you know, for the next four rounds. Like, it, it, it's just not going to work. So be... Yeah, I, I don't like to overcomplicate things and, and that's always the way I've been. Um, but I think you've got to coach at the level that you're at. You know, you've got to coach at the level you're at. Don't look at don't look at what AFL sides are doing. You know, you can pinch a little bit, but don't pinch the lot because you just haven't got time for it. You know, you haven't got time for it. And you need clarity in your players' minds when they've got the footy. You don't want them to be like robots at our level because um, the good players will excel um, if you allow them to excel. You know, just let them play how they want to play and you make sure that you just sit there and take the best seat in the house. 100%. 100%. Nutsy, how were you in that sense, mate? Were you starting game plan or any strategy from the get-go and what was your clarity piece around the playing group looking like when you took Bourne over? Yeah, look, not too dissimilar to everything you just heard then from Gemma. I think it's pretty consistent. It's, it's, it still amazes me watching AFL, how they all commentate the same way. The sides that you know take the risk, that are bowled off halfback, that can create the out forty-five through the corridor, can lower the eyes and hit up and not bomb to to contest win more often than not. Yet some AFL clubs are still not doing that. Um, I was a Geelong supporter growing up. Um, I was a fanatical Geelong supporter through the successful era, and I think they were one of the first clubs to start really taking the game on through through the corridor in particular. Yeah, um, just taking that kick on and just basically playing bold footy. Um, I, I did a lot of repetitive stuff. Um, I used to tell the guys, I know it's repetitive. I know it's a similar kind of style drill, but you just have to, we only get them, as Jamo said, you get them three hours a week. You just don't get them for long enough to be able to teach them anything else. So um, I, was, I was huge on um, playing on, uh, lowering the eyes. If, if, if anyone bombed to a contest, I used to do my head in because we didn't have a tall side of ball, but used to absolutely do my head in because... Yeah. Every half back, every all the back lines, they're, they're waiting for that long bomb in. That's the, that's where they're going to create the the, the the extra man up, the spoil, and they're going to run it out the other way. So, mate, for the first two or three years at Bourne in particular, I just trained the hit up, lower the eyes, lead at the player, and honour it, honour it every single time. Give the handball and let the space open up behind you. Um, so I was really big on not not kicking the ball long. We hardly kick the ball over 35, 40 metres unless someone got out the back and they're on their own, and away we go. But yeah. Um, I was really, really big on that. Um, very similar to Jamar halfback, getting the defenders to, to basically own the game. And that was the play-on zone. You know, the halfback runs the play-on zone. Take it, get off the line and, and cause a play-on. Because modern-day football, if you're going to go slow off halfback, you let all the players get in front of you and you have to try to pick your way through that, um, through that field. You can't do it. So it's a risk-taking responsibility off the halfback line. But if you've got a couple of uh, little geniuses, which, which Uni Blues have in the halfback line, it's pretty easy to have that... Um, have that game style, oh, and, and, I think, and, and and I've opened four or five of them. I, I was lucky enough to have two or three of them at ball, and a guy called Stevie Kenner. I'm not going to remember Steve Kenner. Yeah, he played Carlton. Um, Carlton is a box hill, um, five foot seven. Yeah, Abs- absolute genius with the football. Um, you just give it. I used to tell the boys, just give it to him every time. He'll play on, and when what playing on does with a genius, he gets out of trouble and he'll hit hit a target because there's more space. So, you know, again, it wasn't rocket science at all. We just kept it really, really simple. Very repetitive, very, very good at contested stuff, um, but fast football because you want to score and give your forwards every chance. So not too dissimilar to how Jamo's um, boys would be playing, I would have thought. And it's their outlet too, let's not forget. It's the 
Local footy is their outlet. Even though you guys mm. have both been involved at really high levels, the common theme around what you've both been talking about is you've just created environments that are really fun and enjoyable for these guys, no matter what level they're at. And you've both coached some bloody good football players, let's be honest, but you've created environments for them just to come and have fun and have footy as an outlet still. Would that be fair? Yeah, absolutely spot on for me. And, you know, that's the, the thing about it too is it's your outlet. So you've got to enjoy, you've got to enjoy the environment as well. And I, I know Daniel spoke about his relationship with his players and going out and doing what you do. But, yeah, it's, it's so important. You, you know, you spend a lot of time at a football club. You want it to be enjoyable. You want the players to enjoy it. You know, you and um, yeah, it's it's an environment that you want to foster. You know, you want to make sure that people aren't dreading getting the footy trainer. And I think we've all been there as footballers back in the day. You know, it's raining on a Tuesday night. You're in the car. You're driving a footballer. You're driving a home. You're driving a footballer. You're driving a home. You want to make sure your players are driving a football. You know, not going home to watch home and away. Which, um, you know, I think some players that don't like the environment, I'm sure, are still doing that. You know, that's still happening. Um, hey, I'm working late tonight. Mm. You know, that, that type of excuse, if you're getting that through three or four players each each night, you know, we you, you're doing something wrong, I suppose, as a coach. So you're not in, they're not enjoying that environment to come to training and, you know, work for the greater good. But, you know, that comes from, a, you know, people might be watching this and think, yeah, that's all right for him to say, um, if players don't turn up, they won't get a game because of of the level that you play at. But you know, I've when when I've started coaching, we haven't been the great side. But when we um, when training was enjoyable, everyone was there, and our training numbers were high. And that's what makes training numbers high. You know, if you make the make it enjoyable to be, and yeah, that's what it's got to be. I, well, the I players, think it's the players are the experts, mate. So that that notion that oh yeah, you just replace one gun with another type thing at uni, well, that's not sustainable, is it? Because then you're, I guess, you're getting questions asked of you as a coach. Why aren't they coming? Why aren't you getting numbers? It's You're creating the environment. I mean, the buck stops with you, the fish drops with the head, all that bullshit, but it's true. Yeah, no, it is true. And, you know, one thing that I've probably learnt more this year at Uni Blues is um, the AFL system obviously saps a little bit out of the player that comes back to local level. So if you can make it enjoyable for that player at local level, geez, you get a, you know, you get them playing some pretty good footy. You know, they get chewed up a little bit at the AFL level. It must be so, it's so hard on the fringe players. And I know that we've all probably spoken to those types or been mates with those types and seen them, you know, just that mental fatigue, I suppose, they get in the AFL system of being either in one week or out the next, you know, throughout the year. When you get them back to your local level, if you can foster an environment where they're going to enjoy the footy. Geez, they become really good assets for you. Nutsy, I reckon it's nearly time to wrap this up, mate, because you've been awesome with your time. So have you have, Jamma. I've seen your kids float around a couple of times in the background there, uh, Nutsy, so... <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what they're up to? <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to keep going, but I think you guys have touched on so much. And I think it's refreshing to hear two guys that have coached at a really high local level. Um, just what's come to me, as not, not as a surprise, but even more, I guess, um, validating is just keeping it simple and enjoyable for your groups and being really genuine in the way you go about it. Um, I want to ask, actually, I will ask this because it's, intrigued me for the entire time. You touched on Sandy Dragons there for a brief moment, Jammer. 
Um, yeah. And why not a higher level? You had, correct me if I'm wrong, five or six premierships at ball and played at the highest level, won premierships at a very high local level. How come you never went or... Um, there's no end line here at the moment, but have you ever looked upon VFL, TAC Cup, even AFL system trying to go that in that road in your coaching? Yeah, um, look, the main reason I never took it any further, to be honest, was just work, um, yeah. I, which which is uh, thanks to our friend COVID-19 has, has just gone sort of gone under in the last sort of uh, week or two. But um, I've had the best job in the world. Uh, I've travelled a lot in, interstate overseas, running a travel business, um, and, and, and a partner in that business. And I just, because that was my career um, and it was a good career, and it was a wonderful job. I, I just didn't, um, I didn't have the time to be honest to make the switch over and, and the commitment that it took. Did I want to go down the, the, the path of, of being able to coach high? Yeah, I absolutely did. I think mentally I would have loved it. Um, but to go back and go for a job and start again and spend another five years, it's probably, um, for that main reason, just because it was, I, it was, I already had a career would probably be the uh, the answer for it. But not saying that I, I didn't want to at stages and look at it. I certainly did, um, and spoke to some people at some clubs over the journey. I, in the end, I, I just didn't, um, I didn't jump in because I had a, a bloody good job and a bloody good career. That's awesome. It's an awesome uh, response. I'm going to give you a question, but I'll move to Jamo because I'm going to give you some time to think about it before we wrap up. But I want to know about your most, it's probably unfair, but most memorable premiership and, and player or players involved in that time. So if you want to mull over that one. Jamo, what about you, mate? You touched on the Sandy Dragons piece and that was early on in your career, I gather. Um, yeah. With the success you've had with Joey's and now Uni Blues as well now. Um, What's it look like for you? Is it something you think about or are you comfortable in doing what you're doing? Yeah, it's, look, I I don't think about it. I think um, I just want to... I just love coaching footy, to be honest. I love coaching um, local footy at the moment. I think a lot of people want to strive for the next level. What you've got to... You know, it's going to be even harder now with, I think, a few coaches getting laid off throughout this period. But, you know, you're, you're fighting with... Um, ex-players that step fresh out of the game, step into a coaching career, I suppose, at AFL level. There's so many um, knowledgeable people, I suppose, at that level. Um, If you sit here chasing, you know, you can get worked up over that type of stuff. I'd rather just do the job I'm doing. If someone knocked on my door one day and said, would you like to come down and do this? You know, I'm sure I could look at it. I I would have a look at it, but it's not something that I chase. It's not something that I harbour, you know, I've got a good family. I've got work outside of footy. You know, I'm I'm happy and all that type of stuff. But, you know, if that opportunity comes, for sure, you would look at it. Um, But, yeah, it's not something that I chase because, you know, I don't think it's a... I don't think it's a target that's achievable, to be honest. I don't think it's something that you can really chase because um, a lot of the coaches in the AFL, you know, whether you like it or not, ex-players or have a relationship with someone at club land. So, um, you know, very rarely do they go to, to someone who comes from outside of that. And, you know, that's, that's proved to be great for them. Um, you know, am I worried about that? No, not at all. I love coaching local footy. I'll continue to do that, but, um, you know, I don't harbor any, any dreams of, of, um, coaching at the AFL because I don't think that dream can be achieved. Um, through, you know, I suppose through, uh, what am I trying to say? You know, I don't think that 
it's achievable um, through will and through wanting to do it. I think, you know, it's a being in the right place at the right time and knowing the right people that get you to those type of roles. But that's just, yeah, my thoughts on it. And a, and a decent, you know, playing CV needs to probably be attached to that as well. Yep. Um, yeah. So, obviously, the question I gave to Nutsy around the, and it's an unfair one, one of the most memorable premierships you had or players that you dealt with. What did you come up with, Dan? What have you got? Um, and don't say yeah, yourself. Look, don't start talking about Noble Park ones either. No, no, no. Look, <laughs> I, I was fortunate enough to play in a lot. Um, I was yeah. just thinking then, I, I played in eight since I was 17. I was, I was blessed. One, one eight flags from 17 at different, different levels and different comps. Wow. Um, the coaching ones, you know what? The older you get, the more special they are. Yeah. Um, with, without a doubt. I remember winning one as an 18, 19-year-old and it was amazing and it was extraordinary. But, oh, God, they, they just get more and more meaningful the older, the older you get because you know that your career might be coming to a close. Or, um, and certainly as a coach, having played in premierships and coaching, people often ask, was it better playing in one and coaching one? How do you even compare premierships? Because they're bloody amazing. But yeah. I, I would argue coaching, the, 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 the overall satisfaction for everybody um, when you coach a premiership is something that I've never had um, a, that kind of feeling before. Um, because you know how much work goes into it from volunteers, from the president down. That, you know, you're intimately in, in, involved with all the players and their work commitments and how they've gotten there and injuries and physios and... And Jamo would attest to it as well, I'm sure, you know, once you've coached a premiership, it's just this overwhelming sense of joy for everyone associated with it. It's it's extraordinary. Do I have a favourite one? I think I talked about the 2012 one, um, the year after Sean passed away, was was an extraordinary experience. It was my first year, but it was probably the one in the middle of the third third premiership um, out of the four. We played in five straight grand finals at Bournemouth. We won back-to-back in the, the third... The third year, we, we lost the grand final. Um, we made the grand final. We finished fifth and we, we limped in and lost against Norwood, who are our arch rivals. Um, had a huge rivalry against them. Dennis Knight was their coach. He coached me at Noble Park. Oh, wow. um, and, and, and they're a club that just absolutely rubbed it in like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> um, like you wouldn't believe. Like you've never heard before. And um, that stung. That, that stung, that one. Um, we are probably lucky to make the granny that year. We made it. Um, um, and then um, the next year we finished. I think we finished on top, but we lost the second semi to Norwood. They got they, they beat us. And I remember walking off the ground. And you've been to Bayswater before. It's a great ground. And the, the change rooms are um, they're separated by the old uh, tin shed door. Yeah. Um, and they they carried on like they just won the grand final. They were kicking the door, and the supporters were banging the door. And I'm trying to do my post match dress after losing a second semi by three points. Yeah. So I just stood there and I said, just let's let this go. And it went for about five minutes. So we didn't say a word. You imagine five minutes of just banging doors and all sorts of stuff. And there'd been, we had a player knocked out behind the play um, that that day. There's reports. It was a really feisty, ugly game of local footy, which is unusual. Anyway, we lost and we we, we licked our wounds. But that that week and that build up against the side that we won the next week when the prelim and we faced them in the grand final. we lost the year before to them. We lost the second semi to them. Um, that that week was just all work and all all preparation and, and belief building, and um, that build up was was extraordinary. And the boys put on. Um, as a coach, you don't often get to sit there and say it was a perfect day. Um, that day was a perfect day. We won a grand final by 111 points. 
Um, they did not do a single thing wrong. And as a coach, I've talked about how I am on the sidelines. I didn't get an opportunity to get like that because the whole game unfolded as you would dream about it unfolding. Um, so from my perspective, the 2015 Premiership um, against Norwood was, 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 was the most satisfying one. As a supporter, it was probably, oh, how boring was that? I can tell you, as a coach, that was one of the great days of my life, that one. So that, that would be my favourite, yeah. That's awesome. Did you, have, did you have to harness, just while I've got you on that, did you have to harness the emotion going through the week on the back of all of that? Yeah, look, you used, I used everything, um, everything we could. Um, so you didn't suppress it, you just let it go? Nah, no, 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 I talked about it. You know, we, 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 yeah. we, you know grand final weeks were awesome. You know, we had dinner on the Monday together. Um, the Tuesday, um, got together after training in a pub and, and, and showed some visions from the prelim about the good stuff. And then, you know, showed a bit of vision about the week we lost. And again, just the six or seven basic clips, um, like I can still remember it to this day. Um, Norwood took about 15 contested marks in that second semi, just because of basically really poor efforts to spoil from behind. Like just yeah. really poor stuff, like it was obvious. And uh, there was a massive focus for me. And, and you know, they didn't take, I think that's one contested mark in the grand final, but it was a little thing like that that just, that, that could pick it on. But no, I, I, I definitely played on the emotion. One of our boys got knocked out behind play, went to hospital. Um, you know, I used that stuff. We showed some video, some footage and, um, but but really harness it in the right way, not in a negative way, not to shift focus because at the end of the day, um, grand finals are all about performing. You've got yep. to perform. You, you've got to do your preparation. But the side that settles first, that has the game plan really, really simple, not doing stupid stuff or whacking button, none of that at all. Yep. It was all about executing your plan. Yep. That's how you win grand finals. You prepare really well. You draw in the emotion. But when the siren goes, it's all game here. It's all game. You know how to play. We stick to our rules. We get off the ground at quarter time. We reset and we go again. And now the boys executed that like uh, like an absolute dream. It was an extraordinary game of footy to watch. That's awesome. You look like you're about to run out onto Inverloch Oval now and play. You've got to... <laughs> <laughs> I, I must. I must admit. Look, I, I genuinely do miss it. I mean, a little bit like Jamo. You know, it's it's such a wonderful, rewarding job. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of effort. It really is. And you know, again, I'm not going to. Gemma would probably say it as well, but you're putting in 30, 30, 40 hours a week. Um, you know, you're watching videos. I used to do feedback for the boys on emails and phone calls and text messages and the Saturday, the Sunday, and you put a lot of time, and that's not including the headspace time when you're sitting at work on a, on a Thursday from three, thinking about selection and stressing out about dropping someone. And yeah. it really is an all-encompassing role, but it is such a, a, an amazing you know, responsibility you have with young men's lives. You get to impact their life and they come to footy training and they hang off every word that you say. And um, when you can create an enjoyable environment and you're lucky enough to have some success, oh, it's, 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 an, it's a wonderful way to, to, to use your time. Yeah, it's so well summed up, mate. It's really, really well said. Right, Jammer, back up off that, mate. It's going to be pretty, yeah, pretty hard. Pretty tough. <laughs> nah, but yeah, no, good listening. Um, Oh, look, it's, it's hard to choose, I think. Like choosing between your children, I suppose. But, um, look, the Queenscliff one was fantastic. They hadn't had six since ever. Well, 1975, I think, was the last time that they'd won a flag. So I think it was 36 years, um, a playing group that stuck together, you know, over the time. The good thing about the Queenscliff one was the whole town got behind us. So it was down at Torquay. Um, I reckon there would have been 4,000 people from Queenscliff there 
we got a bus down from Queenscliff to Torquay. There was streamers and go-cooters, all this stuff up up um, along the road on the way down there. So I just, I, I guess the way the town sort of got behind us that week and leading up to the game, we went down there not just playing for ourselves, but playing for the town. I didn't think anyone was going to beat us that day. And um, we were similar. We got beaten by 66 points, I think, by Geelong Amateur in the uh, second semi. Wow. And played him again in the grand final, but just you know, driving to the ground that day, I could just feel that um, the belief in the playing group that everyone was behind us. You know, we're not just playing for ourselves; we're playing for everyone. So the first one was was really special in that um, regard. The St Joseph's one, I think, the best one was two thousand eighteen. Um, you know, that that was my uh, last year there. We we were spluttering. I think we won our first ten games of the season, and then won three out of our next eight, I think, going into the final series. Yeah. But we'd, we'd sewn up top three spot for a long time and the players just really switched off at the back end of the year. And um, I didn't know whether we were going to get out of that, to be honest. And I had a lot of... Uh, well, I had a lot of doubt in the playing group that whether we, could, whether we were done or, you know, I, I didn't really know because the players kept telling me, no, we're right, we know we're top three. Then in the first final, we, we got our um, pants pulled down again by St Mary's, who we eventually played in the grand final. But I think they beat us by, um, you know, 10 goals again. And we looked tired that day. And I thought, oh, well, this might be it. You know, two flags, we'll take that. But they just found something. You know, we're a really proud group, really honest with each other. Um, we got back to playing some pretty good footy the week after against South Bow, And then we had... Leopold, who were virtually undefeated all year, and we beat them by a point in the prelim. Wow. So to to make the grand final again when we spluttered at that back end, I thought, geez, how's this going to turn out? But just a really proud playing group. You know, we always have, I've always had a saying that you don't just make grand finals, you win them, because you don't know when you're going to get back to that moment, you know, so you have to make the most of it. Um, and it's something that I've said in every time we've played in those games, you know, you, you, won't, you probably won't be here to get together again well you definitely won't so you've got to make the most of it while you're there playing um you know and, and the, yeah the joey's team of 2018 just really proud just dug and just fought for everything on grand final day um and ended up winning it there was no no way we were by far the superior side that year i think you know st mary's had every right to run all over us on the grand final but it was just willpower and the will to win you know and being in that situation before and knowing the the spoils, I suppose, of winning a grand final and the times that you have afterwards and all that type of thing got us over the line in that game. So 2018, Joey's was huge. And then this year was fantastic again. You know, I think Uni Blues had, had always had that um, choking mentality, I suppose. And um, it, it was just that unknown going in after having a pretty good season going into the final series on how the players were going to play. But, you know, that was um, my job to get inside their heads, I suppose, and tell them that they were they were ready for that moment. We actually had a really interesting game against Dan's Mob in the prelim. There was yeah, a, we nearly um, got you that day. We nearly got you that day, and That was a ripping game of footy. That was one yeah, of the best games of local footy I've ever seen. Yeah. It was a cracking game. When Dan said he gets all razzed up, there was a half-time sort of melee and it was on. It was, it was as far as the VAFA goes, it was on. I think there was a couple of jumper tugs and yeah, yeah. Um, they were calling each other a few bad names. But um, 
that was really good for me, that moment, um, because I'd always spoken to our group about how they're going to try and get in your head today. You know, they're going to try and they're going to try and tell you that, um, you know, you didn't know how to play and there's going to be a moment in this game where they're going to come at you verbally and tell you that you're choking again. And I think at that half time, I think some of the language was around that. So that was, I prepared them for that moment. And then when it happened, they thought, shit, you know, this fellow has been there before. He knows what's what's happening in these big games. So that really helped us that moment in that game where um, where Zavs had every right. They were playing really good footy and got into us at half time. But I was able to grab the group and say, look, don't don't let them feed off that because that's what they want. They're trying to get inside your heads. They're trying to make you choke you. You know, they're trying to put some um, uh, doubt in your mind. Yeah. Um, just continue to play footy. And what Dan said about playing footy in big games is so important. You know, you, you don't want to get caught up in the um, theatrics of grand finals or bigger crowds. Focus on the ball. Focus on what you do well and always hold you pretty good stead in those big games. And that's one thing that I was always focused on as a coach and try to get my players to focus on in the big games was it's all about footy. It's not about... Um, you shouldn't be laying in bed the night before a grand final thinking about uh, what what celebration you're going to do in front of the faithful when you <laughs> kick a goal or, you know, or if I get a chance to clean that bloke up in front of the crowd, I'm going to do it. If you're thinking those thoughts, it'll get away from you. Just, you know, keep it really simple. Think about how you're going to help your footy side win the game. And, um, yeah, so the, the Uni Blues one was the unknown, but for me to be able to, um, I suppose pass on some experience in those big games helped them. But, you know, then we, we also had those ex-AFL players that had played in bigger games. And that was something that I spoke about as well was, um, you know, Cam O'Shea played in um, Adelaide versus Port Adelaide, which is a little bit bigger than St Kevin's versus Uni Blues at, um, you know, out at Elstonwick Park. So we did have some experience there that helped um, mould the other players that had... Um, choked a little bit in the past. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, boys, uh, this has been a terrific chat. I really, really appreciate it. There's been some awesome learnings in it. I hope that, um, you know, coaches that have coached for a very long time or even people that are wondering whether they get into coaching their own teams listen to this and realise that being genuine and being clear and doing it your way, having that relationship piece, but also the clarity and, and the enjoyment and fun of the environment coaching to your environment. I mean, there's a lot of takeaways in this. Um, it's been awesome. So I really thank you both. No, no problems at all, mate. Been good to be on. Yeah, it's been great. And with any luck... Good to listen to you too, Dan. Yeah, and you too, Jemmo, mate. You're, uh, geez, you've, had a, you, you've had a journey, mate. You've had a journey. Jeez, unbelievable. And your side last year, the Uni Blues while we're on it, um, gee, they're, as, they're as good a local for your side as, as I've seen in the past 10 years. you bloody good side. Um, yeah. Very, very good side. So, no, you, you did a great no, job thanks, there, mate. No, I think, yeah, I was pretty lucky. No, I was going to say, Paul, you know, you, you, need, you, need the, you need the cattle, you need the players. Yep. No, let's be honest here, you know, I, I didn't mention half the bloody superstars I coached. Um, Jeff Goebbels and Blake Broder, who were brought over from the Waffle, who were just extraordinary players, just to name a couple more. But um, without the list, without the players, you know, you can, you can only get them so far. You've got to have the right mix of the boys. So, I think we've both been blessed on that front. Yeah, for sure. Terrific, lads. Well, with any luck, we get to see... Um, well, Nutsy, hopefully you get back coaching your own team again, mate. You, you'll be lost to footy if you don't take reins of a, a club again, I think. And 
I've got a bit more time now, mate. So I might think about that. And Jamma as well. With it's only been your first year at uni, so I'm sure there's more successful years to come. And hopefully, we all come out of the uh, the COVID crisis and uh, get back to doing what we love, and that's coaching. Yeah, no, that'll be good, mate. Thanks, Nick. Love you guys. Go on, you lads. Cheers, boys. Cheers. Cheers. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by Raindance Media. Raindance offer a range of digital marketing services, SEO, web design, pay-per-click advertising, Google Ads, and Facebook Ads management. Rank your business on the first page of Google or build your business's online presence with their range of digital marketing services. Raindance are a boutique agency only taking a limited number of clients. Get more traffic, acquire more customers, grow your business. Don't get left behind online www.braindance.net.au Hey guys, thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. Be sure to share it on all your social platforms or even text an email and please stay tuned next week for another episode of Hear the Voice. Thanks again.